I will never forget, it was not at this church, but another church I served, and we were cleaning up the fellowship hall after a Sunday noon fellowship meal. And so there were all sorts of people doing all sorts of things, and you can picture the scene, right? Some folks in the kitchen washing the dishes, other folks gathering up the trash bags to carry them out. And uh, then we cleared the tables, and of course, because we're a church of all sorts of people and children as well, the floor was dirty with crumbs and this, that, and the other. So we had one of those, you know, tile floors, uh, like you see in places, and um, had a big... Uh, one of those dust broom type things with the big handle that kind of swivels one way or the other so you can make it go cool around the corners. And Well, I like to run that broom, and I saw that that was a need, and um, nobody else was doing it. So I went to the closet, and I got the big dust broom type thing, and I'm walking down the fellowship hall, kind of angling it a bit like a snow plow, so all the stuff goes that way. I turn around and go the other way, and I'm angling it back and forth. And I'm doing this for a few minutes, and a few of my deacons at my church walk in from the hallway, cross their arms and look at me, and the one nudges the other and says, look, the pastor does work. It was also Pastor Appreciation Sunday. I tell you what, friends, it was hard to feel like I belonged right then. And you can imagine why, right? These are men who were supposed to love me and support me as we studied in last week's sermon when we talked about leadership in the New Testament church. And they just cut my legs right out from under me. And frankly, based on the man who made that comment, I don't think he was joking. He didn't have a high opinion of pastors. That may have been something to do with the pastors that had served in the past, but I think it may have said more to him because, doggone it, I was trying to love that man and trying to pastor that man and trying to serve that church. But it just seemed like anything I did wasn't good enough for him. Now, I'm not telling you that story so you go, oh, poor Pastor Aaron. I'm telling you that story because I bet all of you at one time or another in your life as a member or an attender of a church have felt the same way, haven't you? Maybe we don't want you to raise your hands on this one. I don't know. Where you felt like either by something somebody said or did or by something they didn't say or didn't do, I'm not sure I belong here. I don't know if these people really love me. And well, I don't know if I'm committed enough or love them or love Jesus enough myself. And you had those questions and those concerns And so when we come to the topic today in our Church 101 sermon series of membership, I want us to take it from a slightly different angle of how we can support one another. Now granted then the onus is going to be on me and the onus is on you as members of this church and regular attenders of this church that we need to do what God's Word says. And my hope is, as always, that it wouldn't just be you said, well, Pastor Aaron says that. But you will say, the Bible says that. And it's not that you need to obey what the pastor says, but you need to obey what God's Word says. Now, before we get into our scriptures and our texts, I've got to make a point to you in all honesty. You don't expect a pastor to lie to you, do you? I don't think so. Okay, I thought I would get more laughs out of that. Maybe you have expected a pastor to lie to you. Woo! Uh, if I'm that pastor, please come talk to me. 
Um, if not, uh, heaven forbid, the, the pastor that has lied to you in the past. But when we consider membership in a church, I've got a confession to make for you, okay? Your ears should be perked up. Nowhere in the New Testament, according to my understanding or opinion, can you explicitly see where Scripture says you must be a member of a local church. I don't believe it's there. Not explicitly, anyhow. It does not say, thou shalt be a member of the Baptist church nearest by you. It's not in Scripture. It doesn't say Methodist, Catholic, or Lutheran, or anything like that either. But implicitly, throughout the New Testament, it is there again and again and again and again. If you read your New Testament, you know the first four books are the Gospels. The good news about Jesus. Then you get the story of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. This is what these guys did to start this church that Jesus said, this is what I'm going to leave earth. You know, I'm here, there's just one Jesus, and there's these 12 disciples who became apostles, and then you guys, we're going to multiply this movement, make churches all over the known world at that time. And then you see that church planting movement growing and exploding across the Roman world at that time. And then the epistles, the letters that follow, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and, and all those others that have some weird names, and some of them have common names, Timothy and Titus, you know. They're letters that Paul wrote to pastors or leaders of churches to say, hey, here's what may be going wrong in your church. Here's how I would tell you to fix it. And he wrote it as inspired word of God. So you hear a lot of sermons, as you will today, from the New Testament and from the epistles that say, this is what we're supposed to believe, here's what we're supposed to be, and here's what we're supposed to do. And you're going to hear some of that today from the epistles, because that's why Paul wrote those books, to explain to us, this is our calling, our duty, and believers in Jesus and members of the church. But let me come back to my point that you don't see explicit commands to be a member of a church. It's theology by implication. It's implied. Now, before you get too worried about that, you need to think about the fact that we've done theology by implication since the very beginning of the church. And one of the easy examples of us to think of is the Trinity. You know, we call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit three in one. We call the Trinity, right? Did you know the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible? It's a word we use to explain a Bible concept. And so we use that word to help us understand. If you believe in or teach on or safeguard the church from wrong teachings on the Trinity, you already practice theology by implication. Think about it. A uh, freshman Bible college student and a Mormon apologist know that the word Trinity can't be found in the Bible. But how is it possible then that historically orthodox Christian understanding of theology, we unflinchingly and unapologetically stand up for this theory or this theology that we call the Trinity? It's because we see it implied in Scripture. You see God the Father in the Old Testament at work. And you hear Him prophesying of a Messiah, a Savior, a Son that will come. And then when you get Jesus in the New Testament, you hear Him saying, then I'm going to leave one to follow, the Holy Spirit who will guide you when I'm not there. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see all three at work. 
And so it's not explicitly there, but it's implicitly there. And again and again and again, we see that. So that's just my illustration of let's not be worried about the fact that there's not a command in the New Testament that says you must belong to a church. It is implied theology. Now, there's a risk, of course, in implied theology. That the risk is that theology, by implication, we run the risk of messing up. That we start here with what we know from Scripture, but then we take it a little too far here and get away from Scripture. And then before you know it, you get even further away from Scripture and further away from Scripture. I think this is what we see in many churches that don't pay close attention to Scripture anymore. You see that churches teach these grand doctrines and have all these rules, and you scratch your head and you look at it and go, "Um, where's that found in the Bible? It might not be. Or there might be a little bit back here, but they've added all these layers on it, not unlike the legalistic Jews that Jesus was confronting. So when we get into theology by implication, my point is this, and I'm coming to my main part of my sermon here. We've got to be even more careful that we pay close attention to what Scripture says so that we can stand firmly on what we do know and not imply too much the wrong way this way or not imply too much the wrong way that way. So let's look at our Scripture memory verse for the month. And this one comes from our first sermon of the month. doesn't necessarily apply with us in this topic today, but let's recite it together. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, our church should know even at this very moment they got a fallible man standing before them. Because I said this scripture didn't necessarily apply to this sermon today, but it does. Because it reminds us that we're blessed with a church family. We're blessed with the very presence of the church in the world in order that as a church and members of it, we can do more together and demonstrate Jesus' love as a body of believers so that the world might know and the nations might come to faith in Jesus. So it totally applies to us. But God, as we open Scripture this morning, And look at four areas where we might support one another as members of a body. Would you speak to us? We pray. Would we be humbled where we need to be humbled? May we confess what we need to confess. And may we repent where we need to repent. And if it's your will, God, may we unite with this church family because we say, yep, It's time for me to stop just attending and say I'm committed. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, friends, how can we support one another? How can we support one another? When you read the New Testament and you just write down the reference 1 Corinthians 12. You need to go back and read that on your own. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of the church as a body that we have different parts, and the different parts of the body need to work together. If you broke your leg, I mean like really broke it, your femur or something like that, you know, so it's up here in this part of your leg, 
how do you think that would affect the rest of your body? I mean, yeah, you could get your leg repaired through a surgery or depending on the break, you could get some sort of cast or something on it, but then you'd have to, you know, walk around on crutches, you'd uh, 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 maybe then, you know, have to, depend if you had a cast on it, stick your leg out or wrap a bag around it when you were trying to bathe. I mean, everything about your life would be different, right? You couldn't move as fast as you wanted, you couldn't do things when you wanted, and when you got done, you're going to find your muscle is atrophied, and you're going to have to go to some therapy and do lots of exercises, and maybe even make it hurt a little bit in order to get your strength back. That if one part of the body is hurt, it affects all the body. Why don't we carry that analogy that way when it comes to one another as believers in Jesus? Let's look at our point here. Your first point on your outline is sin. Sin. We should support one another not to sin, but because we are sinners. And that what's your blanks are that we live in the name of Jesus. Because as believers in Jesus, if you've trusted Christ Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, you are a Christ follower, a Christian, a believer. You bear his name. When you sin, it's a big deal. Because then anybody who's looking who doesn't know him goes, ah, there it is. Well, those people that says they're a Christian, they did it again. Why would I ever believe a thing that guy says? Big liar. They don't admit the fact that they're an even bigger liar or just as big. But they're judging the name of Jesus and his church by you, by me, because we are sinners. And when it comes to sin, friends, we have a responsibility as a church to one another. If you haven't already opened your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, please do so. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 and following. Now, this is a specific instance of Jesus teaching. I told you most of our scriptures this morning would come from the Apostle Paul, from the epistles. But here we have Jesus telling us. He says, if your brother sins against you, now you have to think about what that would mean. So brother, a believer in Jesus as well, and sinning against you, against you specifically or against you as a collective, a body, the church certainly can be applied that way. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So what Jesus is teaching is when you see someone in sin, specifically when they sin against you or the church, what should you do? You don't put it on Facebook. You don't call up somebody else. When you see that someone sinned, you speak to that someone. Now, what happens here is most people, but pastor, I don't want to speak to that someone. Well, either it's not that big of a sin or you're being disobedient now because you don't want to do what God's convicted you of. So which is it? If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So hopefully right then and there, your brother would respond with humility. Keep in mind, this applies to sisters as well. And would say, yes, I've sinned. Thank you for kindly, lovingly confronting me. Would you help hold me accountable so I won't do that anymore? But if he will not listen to you, which many times may happen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus is telling us when you see someone in sin, when they sin against you, when they sin against the church body, you go kindly, lovingly confront them in that sin. If they don't listen or they aren't repentant, you take two or three others back with you in order, again, still to lovingly confront them. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, throw them 
out. Wow, Pastor Aaron, that story you told at the beginning about the deacons saying something ugly about you, that was one thing. But now you're standing right here in front of us reading the words of Jesus, telling us that if there's somebody that's sinful in the church and we see that and we confront them and they don't want to listen and they don't want to listen, we've got to throw them out. That's tough news, friends, but it's right there in the Scripture. I didn't make that up. You read it yourself. And what it says to us is that we should treat sin in our body of believers seriously. What if I had a little bit of a skin cancer? You know, let's say because I got a big nose, I got a little skin cancer on my nose because I didn't put enough sunscreen on there all my life. And let's say, you know, Melanie's like, uh, you need to go to the doctor and get that taken. Nah, it's all right. I just itch a little bit. I'll be all right. I don't have time to go to the doctor. I don't, I don't want to pay the copay to go to the doctor. And that skin cancer got worse and worse and worse. All kinds of terrible things could happen to me because I didn't take care of it when it was small. Same sort of things happen in the church family when we see something of our brothers and sisters and we don't address it and we don't kindly and lovingly seek to confront sin. Now, let's come over to 2 Thessalonians. So that's towards the back of your New Testament there. So further back to the right in your Bible. Yep. And you're going to get to 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 6, excuse me, I've got to get my notes working right here, well it doesn't always work the way you want it to, Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6 and following, it says, now we command you brethren, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Now, I'm reading from NASB here. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner, among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but labor, but with labor and hardship kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our examples. So Paul is instructing the church at Thessalonica on how they ought to behave. We ought to be wary of a brother or sister in Christ who's in sin. We ought to take care of ourselves, lest we're a burden for anyone else. And so let's go on, verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading a life, uh, an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, gossips, in other people's business. Now such person we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't be up in other people's business. Take care of yourself is what Paul is saying. And don't grow weary in doing good. 
He says in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Paul's telling us there, we've got to take sin in our body of believers as seriously, yet we need to lovingly admonish that person to come back to the body, to reject their sinfulness. So your question is, why should I watch out for other believers? Why should I watch out for other believers? I think your answer would be because it's my responsibility. We're a body. We all belong together. And what affects one part of the body should affect other parts of the body. So then you have to ask the question, how should I watch out for other believers? Well, it's implied then that you need to know other believers, that you need to be in relationship with them, that you know them well enough. Now, our church, as big as ours, we're too big for everybody to know everybody. There's people here that you probably know their face, but you don't know their name. And I'm like, hey, that's okay. But part of me wants to say, just go up and introduce yourself, okay? But maybe we're not all extroverted, and that might freak you out. But one way or the other, we should, even in our smaller groups, excuse me, especially in our smaller groups like our Sunday school class, have friendships and spend time together, not just on Sunday morning, so we know each other, so we can walk closely with Jesus by ourselves and with one another. And out of pure motives, we can kindly and lovingly confront the brother or sister who's struggling. Not to put them out, but to admonish them to come back in. That's our role. And that's why sin in the body is important to confront. Let's look at number two on your outline. Number two is suffering. Suffering. We share life together in Jesus. Some of you might want to add a modifier word in there. You might want to say, Pastor Aaron, shouldn't that say we should share life together in Jesus? I'm assuming we're already doing the right thing, right? We share life together in Jesus. That we've gotten past the should, that we're actually doing it. But if you want to put a should in there, it reminds you then of your need to do it. So turn back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to have uh, two scriptures here from Galatians, this one and one later in the sermon. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What in the world does he mean there? The law of Christ and giving yourself for others. Being otherish. Remember, being otherish is God powered, it's other focused, and it's self sacrificing. It's spending yourself on behalf of others. That's Jesus' love. That's the law of Christ. That's why he died on a cross for us. And that's why Paul instructs us to bear or carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. When we see someone suffering, what do we do about it? Well, it depends on the person and depends on how well we know them. We're Baptists, so if somebody passes away or they're in the hospital or have a surgery and come back and they can't do everything they can, we set up meals for them, don't we? 
And, uh, you know, we take meals over, casseroles, uh, typically, or any other thing, you know, depending on how fancy you are and how much time. Or maybe you go to the store and buy it if that's what's best for you. But one way or the other, we provide food for one another. But, you know, for me, I don't think it's about the food, isn't it? It's about the expression of the relationship. It's about me saying to you in a tangible way, even with a dish of food for you to eat for dinner, that I love you and I'm praying for you. And I hadn't forgot about you. And I spent my time or my money on this to remind you that we're part of the body. We belong together. That we bear one another's burdens even in times of suffering. But friends, I want to say and remind us that it doesn't need to end with the meal. And it doesn't need to end with a funeral service or when the person gets out of the hospital. But we need to continue in our seeking to love and express love to one another. Now, turn a few pages to your left to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. Paul writes to the church there at Corinth, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that, you know I love the so that, we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Friends, God's the ultimate recycler. Nothing goes to waste in His economy. Do you know that part of the usefulness, maybe even the purpose of the suffering and the trials you have experienced is that you can bring God glory when you're in it, but more so, you then can come alongside another in their suffering because you've been there. You know that hurt. You know that pain. You know that anxiety. And you might bring further glory to God by comforting them with the comfort you have received. Go on. In verse 6. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comforts. God put us together to share our sufferings together. So let's ask our application question. When is the last time I was better together? If you ask yourself, when is the last time I was better together? That's a phrase I use around here a lot. It's kind of cliche, sounds a little trite, but it's not. It means a whole lot to me. And I love the examples I see from our church body when we do things together that we couldn't do on our own. Whether it's a committee meeting that somebody has just the right idea and somebody else adds to it something that's perfect and we go, yes, we're better together. Or whether it's something like huge, like this day of resurrection, our Easter pageant, where we need everybody to do everything and even members from other churches to come in and help us out because we're better together. And in your life, when is the last time you could say you were better together? Give an example. In your work life, your personal life, your church life, hopefully you can say, yeah, I can see how my spouse and I complement one another. I can see how my children help out and fill in the needs of our family. I can see how co-workers do that. And I certainly can see how our church does that. All of us have these five unspoken questions of our church. 
One is, do I belong? Like my opening story begged us to think about. The second one is, does anyone want to know me? That extends that belonging of somebody coming to share interest and time in me. The third one is, am I needed? I.e., Is there something I can do, a role for me to use my giftedness, not just sit on a pew, but can I do something where I feel fulfilled because God's made me for this? The fourth is, what's the advantage of joining? If I belong to this church, is it any different than just attending? What is that advantage and is it worth it to me? And the fifth one is, what's required of my membership? Are they going to ask more of me because I'm a church member or is it just kind of the same thing here? Suffering. We share life together. We ought to belong together, bear one another's burdens because we are better together. Let's move on to number three on your outline. Discouragement. We embrace brokenness in Jesus. Friends, There's sometimes it's very difficult to love someone. And it may not be when they've hurt you that hurts, but when they are hurting, right? When somebody you love is hurting and you just wish you could change it. And they cry from a broken heart and you cry because you can't fix their broken heart. A hallmark of believers in Jesus should be that because we are believers in Jesus, we embrace the brokenness of others. And we sit with them when they hurt. And even when we don't know what to say, and many times it's better that we don't say anything, but we are just there. And our presence communicates our love. And we embrace brokenness because Jesus did. There's a scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it's referenced there on your notes. It says, and we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. There's more than just discouragement there and brokenness there. But it's this idea that folks that are down, folks that aren't going the right way, folks whose life has got them down, maybe anxious or depressed or set off by something, that we come alongside them. And we don't just let them sit and soak and sour, but that we seek to bring the hope and the peace and the joy and the wisdom of Jesus into the situation by our very presence. Come back over to Galatians chapter 6 again. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10 gives us another slice of this idea of embracing brokenness. It says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, this passage of Scripture can be applied much more broadly than this idea of suffering and brokenness, but I want it to remind us that we are commanded here to do good to one another, especially the believers, the family of believers, other members of our church family, that when 
they are hurting, when they are discouraged and broken, that's when they should know our presence. So your question asks, what do I do when I see another struggling? What do I do when I see another struggling? I'll never forget an instance when I was a child, probably just six or seven. And we were on the way to church in our little old station wagon. And for whatever reason, we I guess my dad, he my wife will tell you, he doesn't like the gas tank on the car to be below a quarter tank. You always got to be prepared. So we went by the gas station on a Sunday morning on the way to church. That was didn't normally happen. But I guess we had enough time. We'd get gas and everything, you know. So I remember sitting there with the windows down, the smell of gas. And, and then I, I'm, I'm seeing on the road up in front of us, this car pulls over. And it's not like pulled over off the road. It's kind of on the road. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on with this picture? Dad's pumping the gas. Mom's talking to my sister. I'm watching this car. And then this lady gets out. Now, she's not dressed in church clothes. You know, she's kind of dressed in regular clothes. This was the 1970s, you know, so you could tell if people were going to church or not. So my dad gets done pumping the gas, pays for the gas, comes, gets in the car, heads out onto the roadway, and we're just about four blocks from church, and, you know, it's probably getting close to church time. And then dad takes notice of that lady as we drive by, and he immediately pulls over quick, and my mom's like, Dave, what are you doing? We're going to be late for church. My dad says, that lady has a flat tire. I can help her. And he says to me, come on, Aaron, let's go. Sure, man. And off we go on the side of a busy street in a hot Texas Sunday morning in our church clothes, helping a lady we don't know, not in church clothes, change her flat tire. I never forgot that story, and I'm telling it to you right now. Why? Because my dad helped somebody else who, I don't know if she could have changed the tire or not, but I guarantee you this, my dad changed it pretty quick. He was happy about it, and he was kind about it, and she didn't have to get her hands dirty. He let me hold the lug nuts and the hubcaps. You know, there was hubcaps back in the day. All those kind of things. And it taught me a lesson. When you see somebody struggling, when you see somebody that needs help, what do you do? As far as it's up to you, you get in there and do it. You get your hands dirty. You spend time with somebody. If you're going to be late to church, who cares? Because when are you more like Jesus? When you're helping the person on the side of the road or when you're sitting in the pew? Hmm. Depends on how you sit in the pew. And depends on if God put the person on the side of the road for you to stop on your way to church. And God was saying, hey, you can help this person. Friends, we can help each other in all kinds of things. We embrace brokenness. We... Uh, Come alongside people in their discouragement. Let's go to our fourth point, affirmation. These previous three points have been kind of heavy. You've been kind of going, whoa, Pastor, I don't know if I could take any more of this. Well, let's move to a more positive kind of feel here, right? Affirmation. When we recognize real faith in Jesus. When we see in another person that, yeah, man, they are a believer in Jesus. And in some people, it might just be a glimmer. Because, you know, they've been beat up by life and they've struggled with sin and they bear those marks on their body. And you can see that it's hard for them to want to love Jesus and serve Jesus like maybe you are. But rather than getting all judgy about that, 
Your heart is filled with compassion for them. And you say, hey man, I want to affirm the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you and I'm going to call out things in you that come from the Holy Spirit to help encourage you. Galatians 6.1. It's our third scripture from Galatians 6. You think you might got, ought to go home and read the Galatians? Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself so that you may be tempted. So here we have sin again. It's right there in the Bible that if we belong together as a family of believers, we do that, but we are careful in the way we do that, and we restore that person gently. We are loving, we're affirming them, and recognizing that they too are a believer in Jesus, and just because they struggle with a sin that we don't struggle with doesn't make us better than them. And we've got to love them back through that. Confront them, yes, but love them more so. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. Our next scripture there, our last scripture published on your bulletin today. It says, starting in verse 5, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. In other words, whatever, however he's been punished for the sin he's done against the church body. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Don't go all legalistic on somebody and all holier than thou on somebody that's done something sinful. Verse 8, I urge you therefore to re affirm your love for him. You confront the sin, but you love that person. You're a sinner too. You're not worthy to throw the first stone. But you are called to confront sin. And therefore, in your own humility that realizes your sinfulness, you confront that person lovingly and not judgmentally. So your application question there is, how can I best encourage others? When I desire to affirm then, because I recognize their faith, that they are believers in Jesus as well, and they are part of my family of faith, specifically my church family, how can I encourage them? Now, Pastor David alluded earlier to a love language, quality time. And if you've never done the five love languages before, write that down and go Google it, right? You could read the book. There's gift giving, there's quality time, there's words of affirmation, acts of service, and uh, physical touch. These uh, by a Christian psychologist guy. And it, it's pretty much true that you look around at it and you say, yeah, my love language might be this, but my spouse's love language is that. So you need to seek to love your spouse, love your children, love whoever in the language that they receive love. You encourage them by speaking to them in your actions and your words in a way that they receive it. So, we've taken maybe an atypical look at what we should do and implied in it why we should do it as members of the church that are a body of believers together. And we need to address maybe one myth before we go. 
And that's that belonging to a local church is irrelevant. We've got to remind ourselves of our relevance in the membership of this local body of believers called Southview by addressing the low expectations that we've allowed ourselves to have. That folks don't actually matter because we treat them that way. And they are not actively involved because we don't seek to involve them. That all of us as believers in Jesus should seek out a church family to fit into, to belong to, because Jesus died for his people, the church. So should we not give ourselves willingly to the church and get over the myths of low expectations and low accountability and Sunday-only membership and robbing our church from giving the gift of ourselves? I mean, what are you going to be? A consumer and just sit here and listen on Sunday morning? Or a contributor? And use the giftedness God has given you in the four ways we talked about this morning and a whole lot more. And maybe what bothers you about church in general and our church in specific should be what amazes you. Think about this. We're a church of imperfect and sinful people. Can I get an amen? And you and I are one of them. Can I get a louder amen? But rather than despair about the fact that we're a church of messed up sinful people, why don't we celebrate the fact that God has given us grace to save us from our sins, to keep us from falling into those sinful habits, and called us together that we might exercise grace and love to encourage one another from our sins to be more Christ-like. Community, belonging, loving one another is messy. It takes time and it hurts. Sharing your life with others is risky. But when you look at the New Testament church, how messed up they were, yet how they were called to love one another. I want to be a church like that. If you're going to follow Jesus, join His church. If you're going to love Jesus, love His church. If you're going to serve Jesus, serve His church. He's called us together as a church. We should support one another. Let's pray. God, our Father, I thank you for our church, this local body of believers called Southview. And that some of us, we know we belong here. Others of us, we're questioning whether we belong here. God, I pray that you would Speak clearly to us about our need for belonging in order that we might bring glory to you. I pray that as you've convicted us through this sermon about our behavior in relation to one another, that we wouldn't continue 
in our disobedience or sinfulness, but that we would confess and repent and behave differently in the future because of what we've understood by the conviction of your Holy Spirit today. That even today, we would reach out to others. Even today, we would affirm others. Even today, we would seek to extend grace and love to others. Father, we certainly pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that they would make that decision as a prerequisite for being a member of a church. They need to be a member of the body of Christ and believe in Him. If there's anyone here today that knows that, yeah, I need to join Southview and say, I am going to be a member of this place. And I am going to be a contributor to God's glory through this place. Would they do that today? Whatever you've called us to, as we sing now, Father, would we be obedient? In Jesus' name, amen.